All right, we're going to go ahead and read the 96th Psalm before we get into our sermon here. Beautiful words. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonder among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And uh, for those of you who are in here today, not watching on YouTube, I read the 96th Psalm, which Paul already read once. So uh, I was supposed to read the 97th Psalm. The people on YouTube won't even know that that happened other than me telling them now. But uh, anyway, there you go. Next week we'll get 97 and we'll get 98. So, uh, and I might as well tell this to the people on YouTube because they're not here for our um, weekly um, uh, announcements. But uh, I, I'd like them to know this. So if you're listening on YouTube, we will have our last Genesis sermon next week. And then I will personally be gone for a week, so there won't be any uh, video unless Paul wants to get it up on his uh, sermon up on YouTube. And uh, he can use my cameras and all that to do, do that if he'd like. But um, if not, uh, if that doesn't happen, I don't want anybody to panic that there's not a uh, video for a week. And um, uh, anyway, that's just something for you to be aware of. And then I'll be back a week later, the Lord willing. Uh, today is uh, Genesis 50, verses 1 through 14. And uh, this is called The Burial of Jacob. So let me get to that uh, particular passage. And it says, uh, Genesis 50, verse 1 says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who were embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now I'm going to stop right there. And it says they embalmed Israel, not Jacob. Boy, is that important for what's coming in this particular sermon today. <clears throat> Verse 4, Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones and their flocks and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. 
So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a burial property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. <clears throat> now, today we're going to talk about something that, uh, uh, you know, this week on Facebook I had, I, I posted something and I got some people kind of upset at me because I posted the words of somebody that I believe has bad theology on something. Uh, he is a dual covenantalist, even though he uh, denies that. His words show that he is. And one of his old uh, articles, which I posted on that thread from the Houston Chronicle, he actually says specifically what he believes. And since then, he's tried to uh, go back on that. But his words are out there, and he even brought it up uh, on a video. He said it right out of his own mouth that uh, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah to the Jew, uh, Jewish people. And uh, so anyway, the reason why this is important is because if you hold a dual, cov uh, dual covenant theology or if you hold a something called praetorism where the church, uh, replacement theology, the church has replaced Israel, then you're going to have a skewed perception of what's going on in the Bible. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because today's 14 verses show us absolutely and clearly something that is going on which Jacob or Israel is picturing in this particular sermon which is a part of what we would call dispensational theology. God is working in different dispensations at different times, and the church is not Israel. And when the church is raptured, God's attention will again be on Israel, which shows that Israel being reestablished in 1948 is not a mistake. So I wanted to highlight that so that you understand what's going on in the world and that the church is an insert between two uh, things that are happening with Israel. I also want you to know, getting into the sermon itself, that death is an inevitable part of life. And the rituals that are conducted, which surround death, will vary from culture to culture. But most of them, almost unanimously around the world, are grounded in a hope which transcends the grave itself. In the Chinese provinces of Tibet, Qinghai, Sichuan, and Mongolia, there's a ritual which is known as sky burial. They practice it over there. Being Buddhists, they believe in what's called the transmigration of the soul. The soul leaves the body and it goes somewhere else, okay? And the body, then, is just an empty vessel which needs to be disposed of. And so what do they do? They leave it out for these very large predatory birds to come in and nibble on until it's all gone. That's a sky burial. Some people within Christianity believe that one must bury the body. Then the cremation is a sin. Some even believe that you can't be saved if you're cremated, Okay. We usually embalm bodies here in the United States. And when I was in Japan, I volunteered at a morgue. And that was back when I was in the United States Air Force. And it was very interesting to see the process of embalming. And it was mostly done at that time to keep the body from getting gross before a burial could be performed because they had to fly all the way back to the U.S. or maybe be put on a ship to be brought back. And uh, so you wanted to make sure that the body would last. And this was especially so, as I said, because of this long travel time today's sermon, we're going to look at the most detailed record of care taken for a body in the entire book of Genesis. What is the importance of all the detail? Well, my friend Sergio, most of you here know him, and uh, some people on the video will know his name because he used to do all the video work for us before he moved. But uh, about eight or nine, maybe ten months ago, he emailed me and he said, Charlie, I'm reading this passage up in Genesis 50, and he says, I have no idea why there's all this detail. Can you tell me? 
And, you know, I go week by week with these sermons, and it takes a lot of mental power to, to try to think through what God is trying to tell us. And I said, Sergio, I have no idea. And I said, I just can't devote the time to it right now. And uh, there is no commentary that talks about these things. Nobody. All they do is they give you the historical details, and they might give you a little bit about this verse or that, but they don't say why these pictures are here. And so I have to say that out of all of the other recorded deaths, nothing like this has been seen. And because of this, we can conclude that God is showing us a picture of something else, which is something later in redemptive history. And surely enough, after getting to these verses and going through them, I found that that is the case. Our text verse today comes from Ezekiel chapter 18. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? I remember earlier when I was reading, I said Israel is mentioned there in that particular verse, not the name Jacob. It's being tied to this verse right here. God spoke to the house of Israel and told them that they would be judged according to their ways. He also promised them a new heart and a new spirit if they would simply repent and turn to him. However, if they didn't, the house of Israel would surely die. Was God serious? Would this happen? The answer is yes and yes. Israel went from life to death, but in Christ there is the hope of new life, even the resurrection to life from the dead. And we're going to see this pictured in today's sermon in another verily, very carefully placed passage, which is intended to get us to wake up and to pay attention to our surroundings, to the world in which we live, and to our relationship with God. It is all to be found in his superior word. And so let's go to that word now, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, I usually have three thoughts for you today. I have four. The first is worthless physicians. So here's my question for you. It's verses one through three, but does anybody here know where the term worthless physicians is to be found in the, the Bible? It's obscure, I understand, so don't worry if you don't know, but if you don't fall asleep during the next 15 or so minutes, you will find out where that term is found in the Bible. Here we are, we're arriving at the last chapter of the book of Genesis. This amazing book that we've been doing now for the past 129 sermons has been divided into three principal sets of instruction for man. The first was from the creation and the fall of man until the flood of Noah. The second was from the time after the flood until the call of Abraham. And the third was from the call of Abraham until the death of Jacob and Joseph, which is the completion of the history of the chosen family. After his blessings and final words to his sons about his burial, the last verse of the last chapter said these words, which we saw last week. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. With that, we enter into chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Back in chapter 46, just as Jacob is preparing to leave the land of promise for the very last time on his way down to Egypt, God called to Jacob in a vision of the night. And here's what he said to him at that time. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. As God promised, Joseph was there at his death to fall on him, to weep over him, and to surely close his eyes. But it also notes that he kissed him. 
In all of the life of Joseph, he is only noted as kissing on two occasions. The first is when he revealed himself to his brothers, which was back in uh, chapter 45. said at that time, then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. And now at the end of his, at the death of his father, he kisses Jacob's remains. And there's a reason for these two kisses which are recorded. As always, as we've seen many, many times in the book of Genesis, when things are noted twice, there is a contrast, and yet there's a confirmation of something that's going on. The first was when there was a reunion after a long separation. His brothers came down and they were reunited. The second is when there is a departure for a long separation. The first was at the surety of life. The second is at the surety of hope of life, even in death. The first was after a long journey from the land of promise. The second is prior to a journey to the land of promise. The first resulted in a physical reunion and pictured the spiritual awakening of the brothers. The second resulted in a physical separation and yet in the hope of restored life to the father. In the first, the brothers were given garments for their covering. In the second, Jacob's soul is made bare without his earthly garment, his body. In these two kisses, then, there is a contrast, and yet there is a confirmation. There is the physical, and there is the spiritual, and yet they confirm the whole state of man. Nothing is random in the Bible, and even the kisses of Joseph give us insights into the nature of man in his spiritual and in his physical makeup. Jacob now weeps over the loss of the physical and takes his farewell of his father, as people do, sending him on a journey until they meet again. And so that brings me to my little life application for you here, is that there is nothing wrong with mourning. Especially in America, you see people that refuse to cry in public. Now, I can't. I get preaching about the cross, and you know I'm going to break down every single time. But it, it's not normal for men to want to. And even when I do, I say, I'm sorry. And then Kelly yells at me and says, stop. You know. But this is the way it is. And there's nothing wrong with mourning in the Bible. In fact, God gave us emotions as a, a release and if we don't use them, it gets bottled up and it can cause even more stress to us physically and mentally. So we need to remember that. I mean, in the Middle East, that's what they do is they let out their emotions at funerals. It's amazing. We, they do it in uh, uh, other parts of the world as well. In Japan, there's very little emotion that's expressed. So it, it's just something that is normal, but we try to suppress and we should not. Mourning for a Christian is a normal thing, all right? Verse 2, and Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. The people being referred to here, very interesting, are the physicians. They're literally known as the healers. In Hebrew, the word is harophim, or in the singular, rapha. The word is used 67 times in the Old Testament, and it is translated as to heal, to be a physician, or to purify. One memorable use of this word comes from the suffering servant passage, which is found in Isaiah chapter 53, the fifth verse. Let me read this to you. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That word right there, rapha. To us, using this word then for Jacob's body doesn't seem to make any sense. Why would a healer be used on a dead body? But considering the state of man, it then begins to make sense. Almost nobody would dispute that there is a difference between the physical body and the soul. There may be a, you know, a disagreement on what the soul is, 
but there is a physical body and there is something which animates that body. When that which animates departs, the body ceases to function. It dies. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that a soul without a body is naked. Here's how he describes it. For we know that if our earthly house, meaning our body, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, implying that the soul without a body is naked. But still, why would a healer be used on a dead body? The answer is that to the Egyptians, the soul, or as they call it, the ka, uh, would return to inhabit that body after it was embalmed. Once the mummification was done, it would be ready for occupation once again. Otherwise, it would rot away and it would leave that soul naked. So maybe they believed it was a ghost or something, but that's what the Egyptians believed. This word rafa for healer implies to mend or to sew together and hence to heal like a physician would do after an operation. This same word, and this is very interesting, when you see corresponding words between the Old and New Testament, you know that God is trying to tell us something. It corresponds to the Greek word rafto, which means to sew, which is then tied to the word needle or raphis, which is found in Jesus' words in Matthew 19. Here's what he says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, raphis, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There is the universal desire for us to live forever. As Solomon says it in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, eternity itself is written on our hearts. He says these words, He has made everything beautiful in its time, and he has also put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. Because of this, the Egyptians embalmed the bodies of their dead, hoping for eternal life when the soul would reunite with the body. Estimates are that as many as 420 million bodies were mummified in this way during the years in which Egypt followed this uh, particular custom. But the problem with mummification was that it only treated the physical body not the spiritual person. The problem with man and the reason why man dies is sin. Without healing this condition, the disconnect between God and man remains. Job 13, although not uh, speaking about embalmers, uses this exact same word and applies it to his friends during their discourse. It is a sentiment which beautifully reflects the state of the embalmers who sowed the dead body but do nothing for the soul. Here's what it says in Job. If you're all still awake, this is what I asked you. But you are forgers of lies. You are all worthless physicians. All right? All of the work and cost involved in embalming did absolutely nothing to bringing the person one step closer to true life. Instead of their worthless efforts is the glorious contrast in why Jesus Christ came. That passage from Isaiah, which used that word, remember the suffering servant passage I read, said that by his stripes we are healed. Peter explains exactly what this means in the New Testament. And I want to tell you, it is not at all what charismatics cite. You know, they say, by his stripes you are healed, and they claim healing over people. It has absolutely nothing to do with physical healing. Nothing. 
That is, if you want to pray for somebody to be healed, great, go ahead and do it. But that is not a verse. You don't want to take a verse out of context in order to claim something that is not your prerogative. Here's how Peter describes this type of healing. Who himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. It's speaking of the spiritual connection back to God, the removal of sin that is what's being referred to in Isaiah. Although that verse, as I said, is incorrectly applied to the physical healing, Peter explains very clearly that it is healing from sin that is being referred to. And then that ties directly into Jesus' words to his disciples about the eye of the needle, or the raphis. With men, it is impossible. There's no way to make that bridge back to God because we can't heal our own sinful condition. But with God, all things are possible. The healing is affected in Christ, and by his work, we are restored to God. This is what the embalmers of Egypt, the Rophim, were hoping for, but it is that to which they could never attain. So if embalming didn't accomplish the purpose for which it was intended, then why do we have these words which follow in verse 2 as it continues? So the physicians embalmed Israel. This is the only time in the entire chapter that Israel, or even Jacob, is used of him, okay? Later, both names are going to be used in relation to the family, but not specifically about him. Now, there are a couple reasons that Joseph gave an order for his servants to embalm his father. The first is because it was the standard custom of the land, and people generally follow the customs of the land in such instances. Not always, but generally. The second reason is that the body would have to be taken all the way back to Canaan, according to the promise that Joseph had made. The trip back would be rather displeasing as the body degraded in the heat of the Middle East, and so embalming was very much necessary. The process of embalming in Hebrew comes from the word chanat. It means to make spicy, and this is exactly what occurred. The process was long, and it was involved, but much of it concerned the use of spices. The word is used only five times in the entire Bible, and four of them are in this chapter. Three are speaking of Jacob, and once it is speaking of Joseph. All right. The only other time that it's used is in the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And it doesn't sound at all like, you know, embalming. Here's what it says. The fig tree puts forth her green figs. That word right there, puts forth. And the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Doesn't sound anything like embalming, does it? It means to make spicy. In the end, it is a testimony to the lowly state of our bodies that when the soul departs, it immediately begins to break down, to smell, and to become offensive to every single sense of those who are left behind. It is from this world of corruption, not to this world of corruption, that the Christian looks. The embalming of Jacob and Joseph were temporary measures in anticipation of their eternal state, not expected solutions to it. And the same is seen later in both testaments of Scripture. In 2 Chronicles, we see that bodies were prepared for internment as a temporary measure. In the account of King Asa, we read this. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients prepared in a mixture of ointments. They made a very great burning over him. And then in the New Testament, Israel's greatest and his, their true king 
was likewise buried in a mixture of spices according to the customs of the Jews. Here's what it says there in John 19. And Nicodemus, who at first came, by Jesus, came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. What the Jewish people did, though, was not embalming. We don't want to make that mistake. It was preparation for burial. It was to keep people from being smelly as they were being mourned over. After the body degraded, they'd go back into the tomb and they'd collect the box and they'd, uh, bones and they'd put them in a stone box. And that brings us to a second real quick life application that comes to mind. What is it that we need to do with the bodies of dead believers? As I said earlier, there are some uh, sects in Christianity, and I would actually call them cults, most of them, that say you can't uh, incinerate a body or they'll never go to heaven. Okay, That has nothing to do with the spiritual. That's physical. That, so that's nuts right there. But the Bible says absolutely nothing about the disposal of the human body. It does imply throughout the Bible that we need to tend it with care because we are created in the image of God. But when the soul leaves the body, we need to understand that there is no connection at all to that body anymore. So if you get uh, you know, cremated, or if you get blown up in a, a, an atomic explosion where you're vaporized, or if you get eaten by a shark, or whatever happens to you, you are ultimately going to end in exactly the same state because you are in a world of corruption, and you are corrupt, and you are going back into that world of corruption. God's not worried about those finer details. If he was, he would have told us in the New Testament, but he doesn't. So don't get worried about that and don't let anybody sidetrack you. Read the Bible, make sure you check on these things and also check on me because maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've misread the Bible about this issue and maybe you're not gonna go to heaven if you get cremated. So check your Bible for yourself, but I believe firmly what I've just told you about the disposal of the human body, okay? Uh, verse three, 40 days were required for him for such are the days required for those who were embalmed and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. There are two ancient writers, Herodotus and a guy named Diodorus, who both closely agree with the time frame that the Bible mentions right here. One says 40, one says I think 42. The embalming process took 40 days to complete, and in conjunction with this for a royal person, as Jacob would be considered, there was a period of 70 days of mourning. This would be comparable to what we see in the United States when a president or some other person dies and uh, we lower the flag to half-staff for a given period as a reminder of the loss to the nation. That's what the 70 days of mourning is like. Later in Israel's history, there's going to be a time of 30 days of mourning for first Mo, uh, Aaron and then Moses. And after that, at the death of Saul, there's a period of seven days of fasting, which were noted. From a biblical perspective, there is no set of time of mourning for the Christian who loses a loved one. The duration is going to be solely on the personal feelings and emotions of the person who's left behind. Assuredly, it is hard, I do tell, to enter heaven's kingdom for a man who is rich. And again, I say to you, it is easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle used to make a stitch. For a rich man to so enter the kingdom of God is a most difficult path in the shoes in which he is shod. Who then can be saved? The message to our heart sorrow it brings. Worry not, my friends, with men this is impossible, but it is possible with God who can do all things. Our second thought today is to fulfill a vow, verses 4 through 6. Verse 4 says, Now when the days of his mourning were past, only after the days of mourning were accomplished is any further action taken in regards to Jacob. To do what he intends to do in fulfilling the promise any earlier would be considered disrespectful to the people of Egypt and thus to Pharaoh their ruler. 
that would be comparable to one military base raising its flag back to full staff while all the other bases remained at half staff and that would be against the directives of Congress or the president who you know, gave out the edict. In allowing the full time to pass, Joseph is ensuring every single protocol is met without causing anyone to later have a case against him. Now I want to give you an example of this so that you can you know, see what I'm talking about. When I lived in Japan, it was from 1984 until 1990, a person died in Japan, very famous person. He was the emperor, Hirohito. He's the guy that got him through World War II and almost ruined the nation, but uh, he died. And in Japan, there are 47 prefectures. A prefecture is like a state. There's 47 of them. One prefecture did not mourn during the time of mourning. They opened their banks, they opened their schools, and they went and they went about their business. And that happened to be the prefecture that my wife is from, Okinawa. And the reason why is because Okinawa, this teeny little island way south of them, used to be their own nation. They had their own culture, they had their own language, they had their own king. Everything was theirs, and then the Japanese went in and they invaded them. They cut off all the men's heads, raped all the women, and said, you're Japanese now. And so the Okinawans have always had this tension between them and the, uh, the uh, mainland Japanese. And so when Hirohito died, they were not going to show him any respect at all. And so they said, we're just going about business as normal. And I heard about that, and it kind of made me chuckle, because that's what it would be like a base, one base raising its flag back up to full staff. Joseph is trying to avoid all of that type of conflict right now. Verse 4 goes on. Joseph spoke to the house of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying. Instead of speaking directly to Pharaoh, you have to wonder why. It says that he spoke to the household of Pharaoh in anticipation of them going to speak directly to Pharaoh on his behalf. Many suggestions have been offered as to why he would do this, because, you know, he works directly for Pharaoh. He's the second in all of the land. Some say that it was because he was wearing mourning outfits and that no such garments would be allowed into the presence of the king. Now, this is the case later during the book of Esther, which is during the Persian Empire, where no one in mourning garments could go into the presence of the king. But nothing is even suggested of that here. And further, the time of mourning had ended, as it says in this verse. So that is completely unreasonable. The reason for going through the household is probably threefold. First, he's leaving his duties, which means that they would be unattended to while he's gone. As a courtesy to them, he's passing it through them so that they know he is not trying to lay unnecessary work on anyone else. The second reason is that the priests would be included in Pharaoh's inner circle, as they are the ones that are responsible for the religious beliefs of the people of Egypt, especially the dead, to exclude them would be tantamount to saying that they were unsuited for the jobs that they held. It would be a real slap in their face. To avoid any such misunderstanding, he includes the household in the pres presenting of his desires to Pharaoh. And thirdly, as we're going to see in just a couple of verses, most of these people are actually going to travel with him all the way back up to Canaan. Thus, by going through them, he is extending a courtesy that they know in advance of his desires and his intentions. These seem all the more certain by his next words to them. Verse 5, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. In this, Joseph states the threefold obligation that he is under. He has sworn to his father. He has made a promise to a dying man who is now dead, so it can't be amended. And his father explicitly commanded him concerning the details, all we saw last week. Because this is his father's will, 
And because it is in a spot that his father dug for himself out of the cave, which was bought by his grandfather Abraham, it would be unreasonable to think that Pharaoh would say no. Pharaohs were known throughout their entire history for being more conscientious about their own burial graves than they were about the palaces that they lived in. This then would be found reasonable to those who would have to stay behind and assume all of Joseph's duties while he was gone and also to the priests as well. He has meticulously worked to appease every single person involved in this matter in order for there to be no misunderstandings, no jealousies, or no complaints against him. Verse 5 goes on. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. Finally, to reassure those who will have to attend to his duties, he lets them know that he intends to conduct the burial and quickly return. He isn't planning on any sightseeing tour afterwards, but to simply fulfill the request made by his now-departed father. Verse 6, And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. The approval is given, an oath was made, and the oath must therefore be performed. I have to tell every person here, this is a principle which is explicitly stated all the way through the Bible, both Testaments. When a vow is made, it is to be performed. When an oath is made, it is to be fulfilled. Pharaoh understood this, even though he wasn't, you know, a Bible guy, and he was ready to ensure that Joseph would not be found guilty of negligence in this particular matter. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. My heart I will redouble. Those which my lips have uttered through my profferings and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. I will offer you burnt fat of animal sacrifices with the aroma of rams ever so sweet. I will offer bulls with goats pleasing as spices for all of my needs you faithfully did meet. You have tended to me when in my time of need I will pay my vows to you and do so with speed. Our third thought today, the funeral procession, procession which is verses 7 through 9. Verse 7 says, So Joseph went up to bury his father. Seven times, seven times in this chapter, the term up is used to indicate traveling from Egypt to Canaan. This is not because Canaan is north of Egypt in the manner that we use it today, where it's all laid out on a map. It is also not because Canaan is at a higher elevation than Egypt. It is because Canaan is God's land. It doesn't matter what direction somebody is traveling to Canaan from in the Bible, it is always up. And the same is true with elevation. You can be on Mount Hermon, which is much higher than the rest of Israel, and you can say, I'm going up to Jerusalem. As one moves towards Canaan and towards Jerusalem, the term up is always used. It is the Bible's way of showing the preeminence of the land of Canaan, God's land over all other places. Verse 7 goes on, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. The details here leave absolutely no doubt that not only did Pharaoh approve the request, but that he honored it, allowing and probably even directing his servants, his house elders, and the elders of the land to go too. These people would be comparable to the chief of staff and the administrators at the White House, the secretaries of the major departments, and all of the other ambassador positions in our administration as well. In all, it showed the highest honor to Joseph and the greatest respect for his loss. Verse 8, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Everyone in the entourage who came up to Egypt, and they came down, remember we talked about that, there were 70 names mentioned, but there were probably thousands that came down. And any who had grown up in Egypt during these past 17 years would have been included in this procession. The number 
with the uh, combined people of Egypt and all the officials from Pharaoh's house would have reached into the many, many thousands that are going up to this burial. Verse 8 continues, Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. The journey here is in excess of 300 miles, and so the children and the animals would be left behind in Goshen. This is the last time that the name Goshen is going to be used in the book of Genesis. After this, it's only going to be used two more times speaking of this spot, and they're both in the book of Exodus. The same place was previously called, as we saw in a previous sermon, the land of Ramses. That was Genesis 47:11. Again, as always, God uses specific words and names to show details and pictures of later events in redemptive history, and we saw that very clearly with both of these names in the past. Goshen means drawing near or approaching. Verse 9, And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Along with all of the mourners went a multitude of charioteers and horsemen to guard this procession. Because of the arrangement of the procession, you know they're carrying a dead body, it would not normally be considered a military threat. But because of the large number of people that are going, there could have been a misunderstanding by the people in Canaan. So sending along these chariots and these horsemen was both a sign of military honor and it was also a wise mean of conducting this entire convoy as they went. Our third thought, the burial of Jacob. I'm sorry, our fourth thought, the burial of Jacob, verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. Eventually, the procession arrived at the threshing floor of Atad, which is said to be beyond the Jordan. This is only the fourth time that the name Jordan has been mentioned in the Bible. It means descender or to descend. Atad means a thorn bush. The problem with the phrase beyond the Jordan is that it doesn't really explain from what reference point. So it could be on either side of the Jordan. However, the terminology here and later suggests that it was on the east side of Jordan, outside of the land of Canaan. The journey would have been longer going this route, but it would have been safer and it would have been much easier. Verse 10 continues, And they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. There at the threshing floor, the procession stopped to collectively mourn the honored patriarch one last time. In all, another seven days of mourning were observed for his body until it was finally moved to its resting place. Verse 11, And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. So that tells us that it was certainly outside of the land of Canaan. There is, in this particular verse, a play on words. The Canaanites looked and saw this great mourning going on, and they certainly heard it as well. The Middle Eastern funeral, if you've ever seen one, can be an exceptionally loud affair, even with just a few people. And with the number of people in attendance, it would sound like the noise heard in a very, very large football game today. The play on words, then, is the name of the location which is given. The word for mourning is the Hebrew word ebel, but the word for meadow is abel. Both are spelled exactly the same way, but they simply carry different vowel points. And so as often occurs in the Bible, and as we do in our own language with similar words, a pun is being made. Ebel Mitzrayim would mean the morning of the Egyptians, while Abel Mitzrayim would mean the meadow of the Egyptians. This name, however, Abel Mitzrayim, or the morning of the Egyptians, along with the other name, Goran 
Ha'atad, or the threshing floor of Atad, are only used in this story, and they're not used anywhere else in all of Scripture. And that ought to clue us in that God's trying to tell us something. Verse 12, so his sons did for him just as he commanded them. The verse is given to show that what Jacob had commanded in the previous chapter was fulfilled exactly, even though it's dated before the burial, not afterwards. The same word for command, which in Hebrew is tzavah, is used both times. Here's what Jacob commanded from our sermon last week. Then he charged them or commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a burial place for a procession, or a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, and there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And if you were here during that sermon and you saw what that picture right there, those words from his mouth, wonderful stuff. In fulfillment of his command and in acknowledgement of it, in accomplishment, we're given the next verse. Verse 13, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a property for a burial place. We can assume here that the Egyptians stayed on the other side of the Jordan and only the brothers bore the body of Jacob across the Jordan to its resting place. Even if bodyguards or anyone else went along, they are not mentioned. The honor of the final leg of the journey is reserved in recorded history only for the sons of Israel. The detail here is a modified repeat of what we saw from Genesis 23 and then the previous sermon last week. All of it, as we saw in that previous sermon, points to the work of Jesus Christ as he secured from this fallen world a sure hope for the believers. If the names in this verse, verse 13, are translated into their meaning, this is what the verse would say. His sons carried him to the land of the humbled and buried him in the cave that is in the field of double, which we saw meant Jew and Gentile, in the face of bitterness, which the father of many nations bought with the field from the man of dust, the fallen man, as a property for a burial place. It is to this place that the sons carried their father to be buried. It is a resting spot awaiting the day when Messiah will come and raise him to eternal life. It is a sign of hope in the promises of God and the faithfulness that His word display, that he displays to his word. Verse 14, our final verse of the day. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt he and all his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. Never calls him the sons of Israel. It calls him his brother or some other term, but it doesn't call them the sons of Israel. Very important there. With the interment complete, Joseph, as he is the representative for all of the brothers, returns together with them to the land of Egypt along with the entire entourage that accompanied them. Now, like I said earlier, just like several other sermons from Genesis in the past, when I started typing this, I had absolutely no idea why it was here. After typing up the analysis of the words and the verses, I still had no idea. And so throughout the night and the next morning, I thought about it. I talked to the Lord about it. And I went back over the passage again and again and again. There is so much detail here that it must have some significance, but I could not imagine what. More detail is given to this burial than almost every other burial in the book of Genesis combined. Other than the purchase of the cave in chapter 23, nothing like this comes even close in detail. Nothing. 
And then I realized it. Unless it is connected with the previous chapter, it lacks any sense at all. But when it's tied to that, it begins to clear up. Jacob had just bl finished blessing all of his sons. And if you remember, that was a set of blessings which looked forward to the entire scope of the history of Israel. This story about Jacob's burial then is not a chronological picture like most of Joseph's life was. Instead, it is an insert of Israel's history, like chapter 34 and chapter 38 were. As you saw those, remember 34 was Dinah, and uh, the, where she got raped, and then chapter 38 was the story of Judah and Tamar. And they were both insert stories into what's going on in the history of Israel. Same thing is happening right here. Jacob here pictures corporate Israel. Remember, he was a picture of Christ until Joseph became the leading picture of Christ. And then ever since then, all of those sermons have showed Jacob picturing corporate Israel. Okay? It, corporate Israel eventually died. This occurred back in 586 BC when they were exiled to Babylon. Although they were brought back after 70 years, they remained under external control until uh, their next dispersion, which was in AD 70. The entire time is considered under the time of punishment, which is detailed in Ezekiel chapter 4. If you ever know uh, what that, that picture is in Ezekiel chapter 4, you'd understand much better what's going on here. But great detail is given concerning his embalming. He's the only person that's embalmed in the Bible other than his son Joseph, and only he is given this detail. This is showing us the great care that God has taken for the corporate body of Israel, whom he pictures, even though the Spirit has left them, just like the Spirit has left Jacob. The body has been maintained in order to restore it to life. This is what's going on in human history right now, so if you're not seeing the picture, we can talk about it later because I want you to understand what's coming probably in our lifetime. This is a picture of the Valley of Dry Bones passage in Ezekiel chapter 37. The care concerning the details of his burial place also, as we've seen, look forward to the restoration and resurrection which is promised by God. This is why the term Israel is never used again in these verses when speaking of either Jacob or the people who descend from him. They are living in Gentile land. The whole family's gone down to Egypt and they're still under the 400 years of servitude, which was uh, promised by God to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. Those 400 years picture the entire time of Israel's exile and affliction, which I mentioned is in Ezekiel chapter 4. They are the times of the Gentiles, spoken about in both testaments of the Bible. Joseph and the other sons listed individually, not as a whole. Remember I said it doesn't mention the sons of Israel. They go up to bury Jacob. Along with them go all of the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all of the elders of the land of Egypt. The servants and the elders of Pharaoh would be representative of the whole heavenly host, and the elders of Egypt would be the kings of the nations. Only the little ones and the flocks remain in Goshen, the land of drawing near. In other words, there is a spectacle that all creation should see. The spirit is supposed to return to the embalmed body according to Egyptian thinking. But only Christ can truly make that happen. When he was born, the great heavenly host witnessed his birth there in Bethlehem. After his resurrection, all of the nations heard about it. And so they come to the threshing floor of Atad, which means thorn, across the Jordan, which means descend. This right here is the time of Christ's visitation, which is spoken of in his Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read it to you. 
But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. There the Canaanites note that this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. It doesn't say of the Israelites, it says the Egyptians. This is the Gentile world who mourned over Jesus Christ in his crown of thorns, which is represented by the threshing floor of Atad, the thorn. Therefore, the place was called Abel Mitzrayim, the meadow of Egypt, the mourning of Egypt, picturing the Gentiles. It's beyond the Jordan. It is in Gentile land, the land of double distress. After this, it says his sons carried him to Canaan and buried him in the special cave, which looks forward to the resurrection. Doesn't call them the sons of Israel, though, just his sons. And then it notes that Joseph and his brothers returned to Egypt. The significance of this is seen in Jesus' words to his disciples. He shows that it's an individual thing, not a corporate thing. Then he said to all of them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life, he's speaking to individuals, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. Those who are his brothers are those who have trusted him individually from Jew and Gentile. It is these who have stayed faithful to Christ even in the Gentile lands and even after the corporate body of Israel, pictured by Jacob's body here, has died. This is why the first two kisses of Jacob were noted at the beginning. The first was after a long, it was a reunion after a long separation. The second is when there is a departure for a long separation. The first was at the surety of life. The second was at the surety of life even in death. Keep thinking of Israel being regathered in the nations and the spirit coming back upon them someday. The first was after a journey from the land of promise. The second is prior to a journey to the land of promise. The first resulted in a physical reunion and pictured a spiritual awakening in the brothers. The second resulted in a physical separation and yet in the hope of restored life to the father who pictures corporate Israel. It is looking forward to the long separation of Israel from God during the time of the Gentiles and yet in the hope of restored life to them in the future. This will continue to be seen in the next section of chapter 50, but I got to tell you what, it is exactingly written about by Paul in the book of Romans. Think of what I'm saying here. Jacob is picturing corporate Israel. Listen to what Paul writes. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, the church age is an insert, okay? I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them, individuals, not the corporate. For if they're being cast away as the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be? Meaning the nation of Israel, but life from the dead. The story of Jacob's death and embalming, the mourning over him before his burial, his choice of burial place, all of it is a picture of the history of Israel during their time of the rejection of the Lord who called them. 
and yet we see his meticulous care of them even then as he prepares to bring them back to life once again. That's why the meticulous care of the embalming of the body is given. The hope of Jacob in his choice of resting place is the same hope that we believers have in Christ Jesus today and the same hope that we have for Israel when they call on their Messiah. It is all about Jesus Christ and what he is doing at different times of redemptive history. There is a time when all of the faithful will be raised to eternal life, both from Israel and from the Gentile peoples. And we are given this as an offer and we're given it as a choice. We can accept it by calling out to God through Jesus Christ, our Messiah, or we can reject it. We can, it's completely left up to us. The choice is something that must be done individually, not in a corporate way. If you have never called on Jesus Christ as Lord, I would ask you to please give me just another minute to explain to you how you can have the same sure hope that Jacob possessed. Even in death, he knew that he would be raised to eternal life. And that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it very simple for us to understand this very complicated premise. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. And it says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So if we've all sinned, then we're all going to die. But that's not just speaking about our physical death, which is the corruption that happens when we go away physically. It's speaking about our spiritual separation from God. Remember what God said to Adam, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. And yet Adam continued to live for 930 more years. So either God is a liar, which he's not, or he was taking, talking about a different type of death, the spiritual death, the disconnect from God. So the wages of sin is death, all have sinned. What do we do about it? What do we do about it? The Bible's so clear. It says, but the gift of God the gift. It's something you can't do anything about. He's laying in the, the grave. He can't do anything about it, but God can. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He offers this as an offering of grace to its unmerited favor upon us. And all we have to do is accept it. The Bible says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's it. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to help old people across the street. You don't have to go and polish people's windows and try to earn God's favor in any way. You just simply call on the name of the Lord. And then after that, go do all those wonderful things. Go to church, you know, help people across the street. Go over and be a missionary in Zimbabwe, whatever. But get right with the Lord first. He is the healer. He is the physician that these worthless physicians could never match because they only dealt with the physical, not the spiritual. But Jesus Christ heals us in our souls. And after that, we're spiritually reconnected to God, and we are given that wonderful promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I would ask you to take the time and do that today. Now listen to our closing verse today, and think of Jacob's body, which has been tended to all these years. Mm -hmm. Corporate Israel, Jacob's body. Listen to this from Ezekiel 37. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, says the Lord. God promises spiritual life back to corporate Israel someday, individually, but as a nation, they're going to call on the name of the Lord. And as Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. Wonderful, wonderful how God has taken a man and showed all of human history for his people that descend from him. Unbelievable. Next week, almost makes me cry to say this. I can't believe it. Genesis 50, verses 15 through 26. Grace, mercy, and faith.
the final words of Joseph, which are our 130th and final Genesis sermon. Before we have our poem today, he doesn't know this, he hasn't been in a, a service before, but we uh, have taken the entire book of Genesis and we put it into a poem format. Not trying to make a new Bible or anything, it's just something, just, you know, so that we have a poem of the book of Genesis. Before we read that, I want to tell each of you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. So call on him. Call on the Lord and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Our poem is called The Burial of Jacob. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept with him, over him, and kissed him there in that place. And Joseph commanded his servants, he did tell, the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the required days for those who are embalmed, lest the body decays. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. This is the time frame according to their ways. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke, he did apprise to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If I have now found favor in your eyes, please speak in Pharaoh's hearing the message I am now relaying. Words without any fearing are what my father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying, you understand. In my grave which I dug, this my plea, for myself and Cain in the land, there you shall bury me. Now therefore, please, up, let me go, and bury my father, and I will come back, as you know. And Pharaoh said, Go up there, and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all of Pharaoh's servants at hand, the elders of his house, and all the elders of Egypt the land as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house, all went along too. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen and were not part of the retinue. And there went up with them, him as well, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great gathering, as you can tell. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan's demarcation, and they mourned there with a very great, with a great and very solemn lamentation. Seven days of mourning for his father he observed, for this morning these seven days were reserved. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at Atad's threshing floor, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians, a mourning grievously sore. Therefore its name was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan, east it would seem. So his sons did for him, just as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, this place became his grave. This Abraham bought with the field all the space from Ephron the Hittite as a property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt the land, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father in a procession so grand. The hope of God in Christ is eternal life. From the moment we call on him, this we receive. And from that moment ends our enmity and strife. God forgives our sins and our burdens he does relieve. Someday Israel will call on Jesus as a nation and at that time will come life from the dead. There will be in heaven and on earth joyous celebration when Israel receives Christ as their head. Until then the Gentiles will continue to proclaim the wondrous gospel message of life in Jesus. It is in this exalted and glorious name that salvation and eternal life is granted to us. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the care, the meticulous care you have taken for the corporate body of Israel throughout all these generations. They have their back turned to you. It's as if they're buried in a grave. They're spiritually dead. 
but you have continued to make sure that there is a group of people alive throughout the world so that your promises are not validated or your your uh, promises are not uh, negated. And then you return them to the land of Israel. Unbelievable. 1948, May 14th, they became a nation again. In 1967, they received Jerusalem back and they're being prepared for that glorious moment when they will be brought back to life as a nation. Their eyes will be opened. They will respond. And just as Jesus himself said, you will not see me again until you, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will do that. And he will return to his people and we'll be there with him following and with the armies of heaven. What a glorious picture. What a marvelous picture you've given us in this passage the faithfulness that you display, the faithfulness to the people who have rejected you for so long. May that be, day be soon, and until it comes, I hope that each person here that knows a Jewish person will continue to evangelize them just as much as they evangelize anybody else, sharing this message of hope and reconciliation with you through the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we want to praise you for this. We want to give you glory and honor, and we hope that uh, our... Uh, uh, communion here in a moment will be pleasing to you and that each one of us will purify our hearts for the week ahead and remember the great grace that was bestowed upon us because of the shed blood of Christ. So it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. We get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the book of 1 Corinthians. It comes from chapter 11 from Paul's hand. And there he writes these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over this bread. These are the words he would have said. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu olam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Heavenly Father, 
like to take a moment for each person here to thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We just are so thankful for what you did for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And we want to proclaim his death until that glorious day when he comes for us. Oh Lord, thank you for that sure hope and promise, that glorious promise which we await. So we take this honoring him and remembering his sacrifice for us. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, it's now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.